I look at it is that if you if you live your life for yourself, if you, if you try to accumulate achievements for yourself, if you accumulate success for yourself, that's fine. But it makes your life very narrow, and it makes your happiness very narrow. It's just your own happiness, basically. But if you live for other people, and if you try to achieve things for other people, not for yourself, then your life becomes much wider, and your happiness is not confined to you. You share other people's happiness, so everything becomes much wider and bigger. And you know, life gets very constricted if you just follow an egoic path of achievement. You're listening to Find the Good News, episode 122, The Shifters, a Beacon Series conversation featuring Steve Taylor, author of Extraordinary Awakenings, When Trauma Leads to Transformation, published by New World Library. Find the Good News is produced by Parker Brand Creative Services, a branding agency that thinks sideways, pushes forward, and gets your brand up. See what else we do at parkerbrandup.com. Just like a blind man that has discovered a jewel in a heap of rubbish, likewise, by some coincidence, an awakening mind has been born within me. With this simple, powerful turn of phrase, the Indian mystic Shantideva laid claim on my heart and framed my personal awakening experience over 25 years ago. It was a profound moment of illumination in the midst of deep personal pain, and it set in motion years of curious seeking, discovery, experience, and practice that has offered shelter over my life to this very day. Perhaps this was the reason I so enjoyed the new book by Steve Taylor, Extraordinary Awakenings, When Trauma Leads to Transformation, and why I was so eager to have him visit me on Find the Good News. Steve's new book is a collection of potent awakening stories spanning across the wide spectrum of traumatic human experiences such as imprisonment, war, addiction, depression, tragedy, and grief. He presents the common markers exhibited by the awakened, shifters, on the other side of a trauma experience. No stranger to these uncommon causes of awakening, Steve offers a view of minds and hearts dawning in plain view, in the shadowy yet lovely circumstances of human existence, and in the beautiful, bumpy, ordinary enlightened beings blooming around us in this heap of rubbish. Now, I invite you to move beyond fundamentalism, past religious framing, and open yourself to the idea of your own potential for extraordinary awakening. Then tune your attention to this good news beacon, and press play on a little good news. This morning, dreaming up a story I can hear The way it's going, cause you're laughing in your sleep On the path to your deliverance in a holy wall of light Through your window Old news, bad news, fake news Sometimes you want to shut those signals down and seek a better source. With my Find the Good News Beacon series, I tune into good people doing good works wherever I can find them. I scan across the full spectrum of life, seeking out human beings that have turned their dials towards helping others, aligning their time, resources, and talents with goodness, justice, mercy, and love. In each episode, I sync up with the hearts and minds of my extraordinary guests. We have dynamic conversations that invigorate the mind long after our transmission has ended. I discover the critical life experiences that shape them, the perspectives that drive them, and the fundamental beliefs that have anchored them to a path of goodness. There's a lot of background noise in the world. My name is Oren Parker, and I'm cutting through the static to find the good. And I love you just 
I was actually kind of sideswiped by your book when she sent it to me. I I didn't really know what to expect because it's right inside of uh, my wheelhouse. And then even at the beginning uh, in your introduction to that book, I found so much common ground. I don't know if you've listened to this podcast before, but it comes up quite often in our conversations, These this idea of spontaneous awakening. And right. your book, well, I, I'm going to back up. I mean, I, I have to share this with you. You know, I had a personal experience like that, very akin to what you described for yourself as a young man. You know, I mean, when I was 21 years old, I had a a type of experience like this that you talk about in your book, Extraordinary Awakenings. And really for the past two and a half decades, I've kind of, as you did, trying to understand it, you know, mm. looking for it in other places. Was there something similar happening somewhere else? Trying to find the right language around it. It was really fascinating. And so as I'm listening to your book, it's, it was a, a string of aha moments because I'm going, yes, this is exactly what I, you, you almost feel in your gut that there are this series of circumstances, almost like a recipe, a fertile ground for this to happen to people right. in ordinary places in ordinary ways or extreme ways. But you talked about things that I had never terms. I'd never heard before like TTT and uh, post-traumatic growth. You know, we hear about PTSD all the time, but I don't yeah. hear anything about PTG. No? Mm -hmm. So what, what brought on your experience? Was it spontaneous or was it due to a period of suffering? Honestly, it was almost... I, I could say this word for word to what you described when you talked about that time period between 16 and, and 22, you know, where I was struggling with who I was. I was leaving high school, so that identity of being a student and a son was dissolving. Um, I was entering adulthood, and I didn't know where to look. To be honest, I just had was having an identity crisis, and it was like a type I didn't know at that time because I didn't have any kind of framework for it. I didn't have any language. I didn't really have the kind of support network that was even aware that these things were bubbling inside of me. And I wasn't sharing it with anyone. I was just felt out of place, like I didn't belong. And I wasn't sure who I was. That that led to what I've looked back upon and called a type of depression. I was sinking into a type of depression. And I, I always... You know, you can talk about spiritual things from a mystical perspective. And I guess that's what I like about the territory you're in so much is because it's that bridge. It's in it's the psychological perspective that I'm just now at this age really starting to get my arms around. You know, when you talk about it from a mystical perspective, what happened, it, it can become your own personal mythology to some degree. You know, yeah. you can associate it with all kinds of things, depending on what framework you're looking at. You could associate it with angels and, you know, a Judeo-Christian framework or a Buddhist framework or a Hindu framework, whatever you happen to enter into. Yeah. And so for me, it happened by entering into my own depression, you know, looking right. in and saying, who am I? Why am I here? Just this very base questions. And I guess I broke. That's what it feels like in just a moment. It was like I broke 
and something changed. It was very close to being instantaneous. The other thing that you talked about that was fascinating to me that was very similar was how even though these awakening moment happens as life went on, I found upon reflection, I would sink back into that ego state and then the depression type. Uh, why am I here? What is my value would kick back in. And then mm. I would, because of that awakening experience, I had some sort of trigger then that could say, okay, it's time to analyze again, look at it again, strip all the mythology away again mm. and start again. And it was like a set of type of, I guess, personal practices started to form from that throughout my life. And, it, and it's reminded me that how important it is to revisit, for me anyway, my identity over and yeah. again and kind of allow that, maybe not breaking completely, but to just go, okay, what structures maybe in the last five years or a decade have I been building up around me that just naturally seem to convalesce around us in our gravity of our lives? Yeah. Look at it and analyze it a little bit and get back yeah. to the center. I don't know if that's too much, <laughs> but that's, uh, like I said, the train leaves the station sometimes <laughs> on this show. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, I, the question of identity is is very important. Some Some spiritual teachers say that, you know, spiritual awakening means that you have no identity, that you are no self, that you... But I, I'm not sure about that because in my research and, and, and also in my own experience, it's not a question of identity dissolving away completely. It's like a new identity which forms yeah. a completely different identity, you know, and, it, and it's uh, it's an identity which can be so different that it feels almost almost as if you were a different person living in the same body. And the important thing about it is is, is that it's an identity which is not separate. It feels connected. It's not an identity which is, you know, individuated, if you like. Yeah. It has individuality, but it's not separate. So you feel connected to other people. You feel connected to nature. You feel connected to other living beings. You feel connected to the whole universe. You know, and that, that feeling of connection makes life a wonderful experience. Because, you know, you're never alone and you're always part of something bigger than yourself. And you can feel something bigger flowing through you. Yeah. That is a very common thing. I mean, I, like you, I begin to look uh, and try to understand it. I mean, for me, it was, and you, you've mentioned several of the same places that I went or eventually landed. For me, I, I landed on this anthology book early on, and it had this collection of writings that follows the human being. Um, curated basically by the categories of all the stages of our, our lives from birth to death. And mm -hmm. I, when I would read something in that book that seemed to almost be like an imprint or an overlay that, that lined with like, oh, okay, this, this is a, this is a very similar experience that I'm reading. I would yeah. key in on that person and kind of go down a rabbit hole of their works. Right. In, in hindsight, I'm so thankful in, in large part that my I didn't grow up in a a, fr a religious framework or a spiritual framework yeah. of any kind because it, it I've always said at least now I, I appreciate it more as I'm older now I, I like to be able to look on the landscape and go okay now I have sort of this multi multilingual you know you can look at mm -hmm. any any sort of 
faith, tradition, whatever culture, and you can then look at it and see these things, these types of experiences over yeah. and again without having to speak that particular language or live within it. Yeah. My, yeah, my experience was very similar because I was very confused until I found a couple of books which helped me to make sense of myself. One was an anthology of mystical experiences. It was that it was called uh, Mysticism, a Study and an Anthology. And it was it was great. So I, I, I suddenly realized that I had been having these kind of experiences and these, these experiences didn't mean there was something wrong with me. It didn't mean they didn't mean it didn't mean that I was crazy because I was having these experiences. <laughs> and then uh, that led me on to other books about spirituality. And suddenly I had this new framework to make sense of myself. You know, I was a spiritual person. I was undergoing this journey of spiritual exploration, spiritual awakening. But um, so that was really, really helpful. It, you know, it really did enable me to stop thinking that I was crazy and that yeah. there was something wrong with me. And um, yeah, I think that's really important, especially if, if you live in a culture which you know doesn't really accept spiritual experiences i mean even if you, even if you live in a religious culture some religious cultures don't really accept spiritual right. experiences absolutely if you're a fundamentalist spiritual experiences of the kind we're talking about don't really fit into that framework that was one of the things i found in my in my research that some of the people did have a, a kind of christian background or or that was the only way they could think of making sense of their experience. So they thought, oh, yeah, maybe I've had a born-again experience. Maybe maybe I should become a Christian now. Yeah. And they tried to, you know, um, fit themselves into that framework. They started to go to church, and they thought of themselves as Christian. And it, in a way, it was kind of helpful in, in the beginning because it gave them a, it did give them a framework to make sense of what, hap what happened. But after a while it slowly began to fall fall to pieces because they realized that they couldn't really fit their own experiences completely into this framework they realized that they had to adopt adopt beliefs and they couldn't you know they couldn't really they didn't, they didn't feel comfortable believing in the resurrection or judgment day or whatever so they couldn't really you know it, it didn't work out in the end if they tried to interpret their experiences in a religious framework I have, I can actually tell you, not even that long ago, I went through a very similar time in my life. I mean, it, there was a time after my father died where I was diving back in, you know, it, and you talk about that in the book, which that's one of the things I loved about your book is that it's not um, this sort of commercialized spirituality to some degree, this packaged um, retreats. I mean, what you're getting into is the territory of bereavement, suicide attempts, you know, depression, uh, addiction, warfare. I mean, all of those subjects, you can see that, 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 that turmoil in many people is the ground for their awakening. And I, I kind of went through that again when I lost my father, you know, I thought I was mm. prepared through you know the decades of my life but then it came and i did i thought okay at that time i was entering a framework where the language of catholicism was appealing to me at that time and mm -hmm. so i dove into it and because it was framing out what i was going through on some scale through my reading i entered the church and ex you almost said word for word what happened to me i very quickly realized that it was something to believe and not something to do. And, yeah. you know, I kept leaning towards the writings of the mystics, the St. Francis of Assisi, the, you know, Teresa of Avila. And you mentioned one in, in my, in your book that I very rarely hear anybody talk about, at least in my circles, which was, um, 
Saint Isaac of Syria, mm-hmm. you know, a desert father type. And I was like, wow, these these beings are having these deep, these intense experiences, and they're speaking this language that's higher than the religion itself to a large degree. It's, yeah. it's breaking free of it, but you, it's very difficult to be that type of person and live that way within the frameworks of your common, you know, Sunday religion crowd. I, I just found it very difficult. I really did, and I eventually yeah. just accepted the time, learned from it, and kind of moved away from it within a ser- period of two or three years. Yeah, I think when you have these experiences, you're really moving beyond religion. You you are moving into the territory of mysticism, which which every religion has a mystical aspect to it. But everyone who's who you know who explores that territory moves beyond any particular tradition. They move into the same common ground. It's like a you know a landscape of um, you know intense mystical experience which which goes beyond any concepts or any beliefs or any any traditions but I mean, that's one of the great things about it you know it, belo- it belongs it actually exists outside any traditions as well i mean that's one of the things i found in in doing the research to my book was uh, very few people actually had any kind of religious background a lot most of the people were from the uk and the uk is a pretty secular country not not, not so many people are religious here so, you know, it's quite common for people to have awakening experiences without having any religious background at all. And then, as you said, in, in some ways, that's a, it, it's great because it frees them for, from the obligation to, to interpret it in any particular framework. It can cause difficulties, too, because these transformations can be quite confusing. If you, if you don't have a background in spirituality, it is, easy to th- easy, it is easy to think that you've gone crazy. Yes. <laughs> Especially if you talk to people around you and they say, hey, have you been taking drugs? Or <laughs> I absolutely recall this. I had that experience early in my 20s. I, I would only share the experience because it was so detailed, you know, and I was so almost, I mean, I was excited about it. It felt like I wanted to run around and shout from the rooftops, you know, and like tell everyone about mm. this world that we weren't seeing you know, that, that existed within the corners and cracks of the ordinary world. And I wanted to do that, but I found very quickly that it was not easy to share. Um, I didn't have a language for it and I did sound crazy to somebody who was just living their ordinary life. Um, even within religious context, I mean, that same conversation, I would get the same thing. It was like, I felt, and I'm, as you mentioned, Many people feel this way, almost isolated to some degree, a little alien um, floating mm. about, um, not fitting in. It was like the the thing that was causing the identity break in the first place. The new identity almost had some of the same markers. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I interviewed a guy who is at the time I, I, t- I spoke to him, he was 93 years old and he'd undergone an awakening um, when he was 29, so it was almost like 64 years before then. And um, at the time in England, there was very little knowledge about spirituality. So his only way of making sense of it was to was just try to approach uh, priests or vicars, and he'd, he'd tell them, "This is this is what's happened to me. I've had, I've had this experience where I, you know, I feel like I'm part of everything. I've lost my sense of being a, an individual. I feel like I'm connected and." I feel, you know, like um, I'm part of everything and everyone. And they just think he was blasphemous or insane. So so eventually, after a while, he began to think that he was insane. He thought he was, he'd gone crazy. Mm. So even though he felt exhilarated and 
um, you know, you felt this marvelous sense of aliveness and connection, but it was overlaid with a, a, a strong layer of confusion. And that only alleviated when um, about six years after his transformation, he met a Buddhist by chance in London. And he started to explain how he saw the world to this Buddhist. And the Buddhist said, oh, this is just what the Buddha went through. You sound like you're, you're enlightened. This is enlightenment. So, so after that, he was, you know, it was, you know, he felt great because he could understand what happened to him. And he became a teacher, became a spiritual teacher in the Buddhist tradition. But, um, you know, fortunately, nowadays, there is more information about spiritual awakening, yeah. especially through the Internet. So I don't think that would, it wouldn't take somebody six years now to make sense of what, what's happened to them. No, I think you're right. I, I think about that all the time. In fact, on my other podcast, which is really just a series of personal reflections, I was just talking about this. You know, I reflected on that time period and back then you know it was only books right i mean if you have an experience and you're not within a framework and nobody around you is there to really walk you through it you're just sort of left to find your way and back then it was books you know for me it was like go to the go to the bookstore and like <laughs> sorry i had to let my cat out of the room <laughs> oh <laughs> i understand that <laughs> we have a couple of cats too i get it but yeah, yeah it was like you go to the, the books, you go to the bookstore and you just research and I mean, or the library and like try to find something that sounds like what you're going through and then just go down that path for a little while. And, you know, that was the same thing. I mean, I, I Buddhism really ultimately, I often say this to folks that I'm not a Buddhist on paper, you know, mm. there's no Sangha. I don't go to anything. But if I really look back at the last couple of decades, I would say that my leanings go that way because it it did the language of it made more sense in a very in yeah. a practical way, yeah. but still spiritual. That was something that I, I was trying to understand. Like, is there a juxtaposition between practicality and usefulness in an ordinary way? with this yeah. sort of experience that I can't really put in a container. Can I take it and apply it out in the world and in, in just some sort of a useful manner? Yeah, I feel the same. You know, I've always been interested in Buddhism, but I probably feel, I probably feel most attracted to Hindu um, mm. philosophical spiritual approaches like Vedanta or yoga. That probably fits my perspective most clearly. But um, yeah, but I don't, I don't feel affiliated to any particular tradition. You know, I feel like I'm sort of, you know, overlooking lots of different traditions and I appreciate them all and I can take something from them all. But I'm, but ultimately, I feel as though I'm outside traditions, you know, I'm yeah. kind of like a, in, I'm independent, which um, which I think is good because, you know, once you're in one particular tra tradition, then, you know, to some extent, no matter how open minded you are, you know, you, you will sort of close yourself off a little to other traditions. Mm hmm. So, I, it's true. You know, I, I totally see that. I, I, I even guilty as charged. I mean, even when I the my one attempt at trying to be operate within the framework of a particular tradition completely, I ran into the fences all the time. I mean, I was like, mm. OK, this is I'm trying. Uh, it sounds arrogant and ego driven, but the language I'd like to use is my heart's just continuing to try to expand and when it does expand into these sort of barbed edges, uh, it wants to crawl under the fence. It wants to go out there into the wild spaces, into the edges and the frilly places, you know, out into the yeah. bleed, so to speak. It doesn't just want to stay in this one container. And 
Yeah. It's difficult yeah. to do that, to stay in one container. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, ultimately, spirituality is about going beyond boundaries. It's about transcending separation. So why would you want to put yourself in a position where you close yourself off to other, you know, other um, traditions? Or why would you want to contain yourself within one, within one particular tradition? Yeah. One yeah. thing that I like, you, uh, go ahead. Sorry, don't sorry, let me interrupt. There was, you. A, there was an Indian um, mystic called Ramakrishna. Mm. I don't know if you heard of him. Yes, but he he um, you know he was obviously he was, he'd been brought up as a Hindu, but he used to read the Bible. He read the Quran. You know, he he read uh, the Kabbalah, Jewish mystical texts. And, uh, and, and people, would, other Hindus would say, you know, why are you reading these other sacred books? Shouldn't you just read the Hindu sacred books? And he said, well, they're all just different paths uh, up to the same mountain peak. You know, they're just, just following different different routes up to the same peak. Yeah. And that, that makes sense to me. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Like slightly different approaches, but they share lots of commonalities and they're ultimately heading the same direction. And that's one of the things in this particular book that I thought was fascinating. I mean, and you talk about that almost throughout the whole book, is that these experiences are happening to people in really some dire circumstances. I mean, like the, that that's what I got from it is that in some of the worst situations imaginable, uh, that that situation itself in these particular individuals is operating as sort of a tiller, you know, and, and making the ground more fertile and for them to awaken. And what is interesting to me, too, is that they have some commonalities, you know, like I, I thought it was interesting how you were comparing, you know, a prisoner to the way people who live a monastic lifestyle live. You know, it's not that dissimilar. Yeah. And I've had that thought a few times. I'm like, it's really one's a choice and one is not. But it's mm. for all intents and purposes is very much the same. Isolated from the world, rigid structure, cells. Mm. I mean, you name it, a schedule. I could see how someone ha who has an awakened experience through a prison system or within that framework could almost transform those things that were their punishment into almost reminders of their awakening to some degree and, and actually use mm. those things. That's right. It's essentially a psychological process. Um, well, you could call it it's probably deeper than psychology, actually, because it, it involves not just your mind, but your whole being. But it's still a process. And sometimes that process happens accidentally. Sometimes it happens purposefully. So you, 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 we can all consciously cultivate spiritual awakening through following certain practices and paths like monks do. But it can also happen completely spontaneously. The same processes can occur very, very suddenly and dramatically. So I think, you know, that's the essential difference between a monk and a prisoner is that, you know, a monk chooses to cultivate spiritual awakening through letting go of their attachments through living a life of self-examination, a life of a life of quietness, and so forth, mm -hmm. and but that that's enforced on a prisoner, and it's obviously it's obviously much more rare in prisons because most prisoners do, you know, don't experience spiritual awakenings, but some do, and it, and it, when it happens, it's for the same reasons basically, it's because prisoners let go of their identity. If you're in prison, everything which constitutes your identity is actually outside the prison walls, on the other side of the prison walls. You know, all of your you know, possessions, your roles in society, your relationships, even your hopes for the future, even, you know, um, your beliefs, you know, your beliefs may be on the other side. So all of these things are taken away from you. And 
And that can be a very painful experience. That's one of the reasons why prison is, prison is such a punishment. That's one reason why it's used as a punishment. But at the same time, that kind of dismantling of your identity can lead to an awakening. In the process of identity dissolving away, a new, deeper spiritual identity may emerge. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, just, it's basically the same process. One one I mean, thing that made me think about, too, I mean, on a personal level, um, was divorce. Mm, you know, I mean, mm. going through it, I went through a divorce, um, I guess, around 2004. And so, you know, I've been in a marriage for almost nine years. There's children in the marriage. But, you know, when you leave, even even if you are st- the best laid plans, you know, can still go south. And that's kind of what mm. happened, you know, mm. and a new identity starts to emerge within a relationship. If even if you're not careful, it can even become a toxic identity, you know, if the relationship is unhealthy. Yeah. And so yeah, that's kind of what happened to me. And so there was that old spiritual experience, that old awakening that was prior to that marriage. Mm. It was like almost like an internal voice saying that this needs you need to dismantle this. So so right. I and I'm quote quote I, the bigger I can be free. You're not being a good person anymore. You're not really living a good life, a healthy life. All that was just stirring underneath, building roots. And when I left the marriage, you know, you leave your house, you leave your identity, you leave your belongings, you know, you may even be entering poverty to a large degree as I did. And I had to go back and look and go, okay, this identity has fallen away. Now it's the, the boundaries, this thing I'd built up all this roots and thorns that had again, calloused around me were gone. And so Mm. it was an opportunity to go, okay, now who am I now? Can I reflect on this and use this till it up and, you know, do something with it. Long-time Find the Good News listeners know that we often meander into topics on spirit, mysticism, religion, and wisdom traditions. If you are interested in these topics, I encourage you to seek out my new podcast, The Dawn Deacon with Brother Oren. On The Dawn Deacon Podcast, I consider my small place in the whole of creation, asking the old questions that have perplexed human beings for ages. Why are we here? Is there a reason for our existence? How do we balm our sufferings? enlighten our minds, and awaken our hearts. Are there powers, energies, and realities just beyond our ability to comprehend them? On the Dawn Deacon podcast, I share the teachings, practices, and perspectives I have gathered as I've made my varied, sacred, ordinary way. I hope you'll join me at the Dawn Deacon podcast so that we can traverse this landscape together. Just search the Dawn Deacon with Brother Oren in your favorite podcast app or search engine, then subscribe. I, I, I went through a similar process, actually, because I became aware of my spiritual self when I was probably in my early 20s. As I described earlier, I began to make sense of myself through reading books. And I started to attend spiritual groups and learn to meditate and so forth. But then I got, I got involved in a kind of toxic relationship, uh, which lasted for four years. And it kind of de- it kind of detached me from my spiritual self. I, I sort of lost my identity mm. and I began to feel quite confused and quite depressed. Mm. Um, but when the relationship ended, 
you know, I had to sort of reconstruct myself. Yes. It wasn't just, I, I was living in a different country. I was living in Germany. I was a musician and I decided to end all of those parts of my life. I moved back to the UK. I gave up music. I felt as though, you know, I was totally uh, beginning my life again with a new identity. And in the process of, you know, uh, in that process, I reconnected with my authentic spiritual self and and I kind of rebuilt my identity based on that foundation. And um, yeah, and you know, after that, life became much more, e much smoother and, and easier. And I began to live from a much more, you know, authentic place. That's interesting. I I didn't think about this in as I was reading your book, but listening to you say that, even what you just said about being a musician. I can relate that to this very podcast, actually. You yeah. know, my day job, as I'll say, is advertising and branding and communications. So I've been working in that field for 23 years, almost it almost since the awakening when I was in my early 20s. So I a job, a profession can be a relationship too. And I, a few, several years ago, three mm. years ago, I, I had, been, had been building, but I started to sense that there was this big division in this job that I, this profession that I'm a part of. I, I couldn't uh, reconcile some of the things that come with that profession with that identity, that higher self, mm. so to speak. And so I, I guess that comes with living life and learning. I, I was like, okay, I, I've watched myself, this higher self, this other me want to show its face in the sun over and again. And every mm, time I mm. get into some kind of a longer term relationship, whether it's professionally or intimately with another human being, that, that, of, that becomes the identity that I seem to have to put the most time into. But what happens when it is toxic? Well, I have to dismantle it. I have to tear it all apart. This time when that started to emerge professionally, I said, okay, I've got to watch now. I don't have to tear this whole thing down. I can just mm. take the good bits that do align with this higher self that wants to be out in the world and point mm. it here, you know, and still have one finger on the communications and branding and the advertising and the design, yeah. but have a positive Avenue to funnel that, that self through, if that makes any sense. Mm. But that I would say sense. that yeah. this pod is definitely that it's a way to reconcile that. Yeah. Your people um, who undergo awakenings do sometimes change their, their career paths. Um, there, there are a few examples in my book of that. Uh, often they shift to a more kind of altruistic profession. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe an, one person became a nurse because she wanted to care for people, to help people. Or the people became counselors or therapists. But sometimes people, they don't change profession, but they change their attitude to the profession. Or they change, they focus on certain aspects of it. There's one woman um, I talk about called Leanne. She's from the, the south of the US. And she underwent an awakening after her friend was murdered, mm. a close friend of hers. And she was a, a I think she was a service manager for a medical, medical company. So it was quite a kind of profit orientated uh, role. But she said that, you know, after her awakening, she just began to forget the kind of profit aspects of the job making money she just began to think of it as a service she began to really care for her 
for the people she worked with. And she began to be really kind and altruistic towards them, to really open herself and to give every person she met her full attention. And she found, she began to find her job very fulfilling, you know, through taking that approach. So, the, you know, I guess that's, um, you know, people sometimes say it's not what you do, it's how you do it. Yeah. Or it's your attitude towards it. So you, yeah. you can find... Um, you can find kindness and spirituality in any role, really, if you approach it in the right way. Yeah, that that's sort of become my personal thrust in the last few years has been to is, I guess, transforming the things that mm. I would say. It's very easy when you're living, a, trying to live some sort of a spiritual or awakened life to say, oh, this is this is a bad thing. I need to toss that aside. And I've done that before. And what I realize is that perhaps that's going to be the only way to really help the world, at least for me, is to look at those things again and go, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm just not looking at this thing right. Maybe I can utilize hmm. this this leftover, this disregarded, uh, thrown away thing. You know, people, objects, practices, uh, anything, and, and um, use that. I, I think, again, getting back to your book, that, that that's what I appreciated it so much is because it's very easy to look in each one of those categories, you know, warfare, imprisonment, psychological trauma, mental health, you know, suicide attempts and look at those people and just go, oh, that's not me. We all have, you know, people mm. can look at those categories and go, oh, that's terrible, but I don't want to look at that. Yeah. You know, I want to look at the beautiful things and the nice things. Well, the world is made up of historically all those people, too, that have been through this terrible situation. I mean, that stuff lies yeah. like right at the root of humanity. Oh, yeah. And uh, your yeah. book makes you look at it in a whole new way, I feel like, because it, it just points the light right at those people. I'm going to look intense awakenings and transformations are happening. Yeah, that's the way I think of it, too, because um, you know, sometimes people of negative attitudes towards um you know people who are in the military um um and also to addicts you know if you you know if you see homeless people who are drug addict who are drug addicts or alcoholics you know sometimes people have a negative attitude towards them they think they think of them as degenerates or you know um you know but but in reality most people who are, who are addicts uh, have been through severe trauma there's been research showing that there was one, one study showed that 70% of heroin addicts had been through childhood trauma, either physical or sexual abuse during childhood. And also, you know, I, I spoke to a lot of addicts who'd undergone transformation. And, um, you know, addiction does have a lot of spiritual transformation. A lot of addicts will go through some kind of awakening at some point, you know, usually when they reach rock bottom, when, they, when, they're, when they're on the point of losing everything or when they have lost everything usually when they're close to death or when they're contemplating suicide. And the same with you know, people who are in the military. You know, a lot of people go in the military because they have a, an idea of service, they want to serve the nation, or maybe they've got no other career options, or maybe it's part of the family tradition. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for soldiers to have spiritual awakenings when they're facing death on the battlefield. And the, when that happens, they think, you know, should I really be doing this? Is this right for me? Sometimes they, they reach a point where they decide to leave the army. Mm. Um, but, but, you know, the spiritual transformation often lies in the most, you know, the ugliest parts of life, you know, the, the parts of life which involve most suffering and most misery. 
It's interesting. Just four or five episodes ago, I, I interviewed a man who has started a thing called the Good News Army. And he basically goes around and does documentaries about people who are serving their community after disasters. And he was an army chaplain in Afghanistan, in Afghanistan. And he told the story on the podcast that just lines up exactly with what you're talking about. He was talking about this firefight in this Valley in Afghanistan. And when he started telling it to me, he said there was this moment during the firefight, you know, in the middle of all this chaos and death, Mm -hmm. There was this butterfly that was sitting on a a reed, and he said, Hmm. it was like I was it and it was me. And he said, time just sort of stopped, and I didn't hear the gunfire, you know, it was like everything just was, it was a moment where I didn't feel any of that chaos. And then after the battle, he said, you know, I looked out on the field in the valley where we were, and... It was just serenity. He said, I felt like everything was just lifted out of me, like something had woke up inside of me. And I was fascinated by that. I was like, so it's interesting Mm. that in the midst of that chaos, something about that Mm. was Mm. the trigger moment, you know, that that gave him this awakened experience. Yeah. There's a guy in my book called David who's become a friend of mine. And he 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 was in the military for 20 years, I think. And... He was fighting in Iraq during the Second Gulf War, which I guess was about 2003, yeah. I think. Yeah. And um, it was his role to go onto the battlefield at the end of a battle to, you know, to check whether there were any dead bodies around or any people who were close to death, any injuries. So he he went onto the battle onto the battlefield about four o'clock in the morning at the end of the battle, and he found an Iraqi soldier who was obviously close to death, who was bleeding everywhere, but he was still awake, still conscious. And he just sat down beside this soldier. He knew he was going to die very shortly. So just put his arm on his shoulder and just touched him and just said, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. And the guy was looking at him. They were looking at each other. And the guy was sort of murmuring in pain, but he just tried to comfort him. And in that moment, he just just felt that there was no difference between them, that he was this person. And all notions of nationality and conflict just faded away. Mm. You know, he realized that there was this common spiritual core. And the man died you know, while he was with him. But after that, um, he felt he had to leave the army after that. And the next day, funnily enough, he got a, a back problem. He got a, a hernia, a slip disc, we call them in the UK. Mm-hmm. And he had to be airlifted out of uh, Iraq to get treatment. It was as if his body responded, you know, yeah, it was in done some miraculous way. But that Very moment, you know, of, of witnessing the man's death and feeling one with him, it just changed everything, you know, and... He retrained as a counselor, and now he works as a psychotherapist. That's that's incredible. A huge shift, and you use that word in the book, shifters. I I loved it. I I, I remember uh, just smiling when I'd read that word, just shifters. I was like, that's a good name for what what it is. Yeah. A very uh, easy term to adopt. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it is a shift. I mean, sometimes yeah. it's a gradual shift that takes place over months or years i think david who i just mentioned he'd probably been going through a a gradual shift for many years before he underwent that experience he told me he had lots of spiritual experiences on the battlefield you know just staring up at the sky and seeing the stars especially in the desert when it's completely dark Mm. see thousands and thousands of stars really brightly but for some people it's a very sudden moment you know almost without any warning it's a very sudden shift that sometimes happens to alcoholics or, or addicts, drug addicts. They reach a point where they 
as I said before, they're almost at rock bottom. They've lost everything. Mm. They feel that they're, you know, destined to die soon because there's no hope for them. And then suddenly something shifts inside them. And one of the strangest phenomenon I talk about in the book, phenomena, is um, what I call addiction release. Addiction release, that's when addicts suddenly let go of their addictions yeah. in a very strange, mysterious way. Well, one woman I, I interviewed, she'd been an alcoholic for 29 years. She'd been drinking heavily for 29 years. But her addiction, this was following a suicide attempt, her addiction just suddenly, spontaneously disappeared. And she became free without any kind of, you know, there's no religion involved. It was just a, a psychological shift. Yeah, that and, happened uh, that, to someone close to us as well. It was the same thing. And there was a spiritual shift as well. I mean, it was the same thing. It was an alcoholic life you know, style that had essentially consumed and was breaking all these relationships. And then there was, I mean, through, through, I guess through the lens of their particular religion and the way they recounted the story with us, it was, you know, a result of that religion. But when you strip all the religious markers off of it, it was exactly as you describe in your book and these experience, it was very sudden uh, and mm. they were freed from the addiction. You know, it was just gone. It was like that ended it. It wasn't this long um, process of working through it. You know, all the other attempts yeah. had just failed. Yeah. And then it was just over, you know, never wow. drank again. Yeah. I mean, sometimes these people, they often join AA or NA and go along to meetings and they, they sometimes said to me they feel a bit guilty because for most people it's a struggle to get by from day uh -huh. to day, you know, one day at a time. But they, for them, it's not a struggle at all. It, they've just, it's really, really easy because the addiction has just disappeared. So it's, they sometimes feel a bit guilty that, that other people are struggling. Well, one woman told me that um, she went along to a, uh, an AA meeting. She had been a, a drug addict for a long time and she'd suddenly let go of her addiction. And she was supposed to, you know, you're supposed to stand up and say, my name is so-and-so, I am right. an addict. But she didn't want to do that because she didn't feel like she was an addict anymore. So she just stood up and said, my name's Nikki and I'm free. Wow. <laughs> because she was free of her addiction. Yeah, that's interesting. And I know people who are in the throes of addiction probably wish for that, that there was some yeah. reprieve like that, you know. And so often when we're, we're all of us, I mean, when we're in despair, cry out outside of ourselves at some point. And I think that's part of it, too. I mean, as, as, as you've said, that everything that you, we've tried, everything that we as an I, as an I, as a me using all that identity has, have done, you know, we've tried mm. to muscle through it and it just yeah. isn't working. And so there's this almost giving up that rock bottom feeling and yeah. then something occurs you know it's like well you free all of a sudden from your from yourself to some degree yeah it's a new identity yeah that's the only way you can explain it really because the identity which carried the addiction or which carried the trauma uh, has died away and a, a new self has come into being which doesn't carry any addictions you know, it's completely freshly freshly born are you uh but familiar with buckminster fuller I know him. I know he's like a futurist. Wasn't yes, he? he was a he futurist. He was interested in evolution. Do you know his story about like what happened to him? No, what I don't started think so. this? I, I 
when I was reading your book, I kept thinking about him. He has fascinated me since early mm-hmm. on. And so I went online and says, I wanted to recount this to you properly. I think you'd be fascinated mm-hmm. by it. But right. I watched a documentary about him when I right not long after my initial experience. And I remember thinking, wow, there's some markers here. But he was really, he was, you know, an inventor and an architect and other things. But in 1927, he had basically, he considered himself a failure. Everything that he is trying to do for his family just wasn't working. No, nothing. He was in financial ruin and he was really in the throes of depression. And so he went out to Lake Michigan to commit suicide by drowning. He was going to drown himself. And as he, he told the story over and over again, in his life as he lived on but this is what he recounted every time he told the story he said in that moment when i had when he had decided to commit suicide by drowning at the lake he said he was felt as though he was suspended above the ground in a, in a warm glowing type of sphere and he heard mm. internally you do not have the right to eliminate yourself you do not belong to you you belong to the universe your significance will remain forever obscure, but you may assume that you are fulfilling your role if you apply yourself to converting your experiences to the highest advantage of others. And so yeah. he says that after that day, he never he no he chose to no longer live his life as himself. He chose to uh-huh. almost live as if he had died that day, and uh-huh. he was completely free to serve the earth and the universe and humanity because he no longer had to live within the failures of the identity. Wow. And so he went on to invent and create and think, and, and, you know, we live with a lot of his inventions still today. It's very fascinating to me how it was so sudden. It just changed. Yeah, that's remarkable. Yeah. It's an amazing story. Yeah. And it's very similar to some of the stories in in my book. Yeah. Wow. How amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. easy, you know, <laughs> go to Disney World and you see the geodesic dome and all these things that are, you know, uh, go right back to his inventions. But to know that story as the root of all of those things is really fascinating. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. And there's something very spiritual about the attitude, you know, that you're not living for yourself. You're allowing something to live through you. Yeah, and that's, I think, you know, that's the source of real creativity, too, you know, when you... It's not really conscious. You just allow something to come through you. You kind of step out of the way. Your yeah. ego should step out of the way. If your ego gets in the way, then it stops coming through. But if you can just allow yourself to be open and let life live through you, then, you know, amazing things can come through, you know, like, like as, it, as they did for him. Yeah. Incredible. So I, I think of it in terms of, uh, you know, like you, you put, you're part of a project which is bigger than you. You don't really understand the projects, but... It's kind of working through you, and you just got to follow, you know, follow where it takes you. I really like that. You're a part of a project, and you don't, you know, you're playing your little role, and it's yeah. it's highly, it's more valuable than you realize, even if you think it's insignificant. Just step out of the way and let something else happen. I yeah. like that. That stepping out of the way idea. Yeah, and it can be frustrating if you if you don't get rewards, if you're criticized, if you are rejected. I mean, I know this as a writer. You know, every writer has been through. <laughs> hundreds of rejections you know rejection is just part of the like the life of a writer especially yeah. early on but yeah you, you just got to step out of the way and you know just your ego gets hurt by rejection and your ego gets strengthened by praise but 
they're both meaningless you know you just as long as you do what you're meant to do and allow it to throw flow through you that's all that you need to do you know that's interesting this aligns up i I just did this reflection for my other pod the other day and i was talking to whoever was listening basically about this one little line from shantadeva's guide of the bodhisattva's way of life and it's i've loved it and i say it to myself often when i'm feeling like i'm not allowing myself to let the, the higher self to kind of serve and it, and it mm. just says you know may i be a helper for those without one a guide for all travelers on the way may i be mm. a bridge a boat and a ship for all who wish to cross the water and i i love the idea of just very simply may i be a helper for those without yeah. one that's that is so simple and if i can just do that you know, that's sort mm. of the, the first step towards the bridge, right? That I can. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if we could all just do that's that. Great. Take that attitude. Just a little help. A little help. Yeah. The way I look at it is that if you if you live your life yourself, if you try to accumulate achievements for yourself, if you accumulate success for yourself, that's fine. But it makes your life very narrow and it makes your happiness very narrow. It's just your own happiness, basically. But if you live for other people. Uh, and if you try to achieve things for other people, not for yourself, then your life becomes much wider and your happiness is not confined to you. You share other people's happiness. So everything becomes much wider and bigger. And, you know, life gets very constricted if you just follow an egoic path of achievement. You get, you, and ultimately, it gets so constricted that you feel frustrated and unhappy. I guess Beautiful. that's what, you know, sometimes what they call the midlife crisis. Yeah. But, uh, you know, if you live for other people, then there's no limit. There's no limit to your happiness or, or to your achievements. You'll achieve a lot more as well if you do. If you, you know, achieve things for other people rather than for yourself. I guess that you know, goes back to that story about what, what Mr. Filler. You know, he wasn't inventing for himself. He was right. inventing things for the good of other people. I yeah. guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's all right. That that's a beautiful takeaway to me. That's a, a takeaway. A great place to land on. If you mm. can land on anything, you know that that that's what can come from just allowing the other self to sort of emerge you know for others yeah beautiful yeah the the deeper self you know the kind of spiritual self that we've been talking about you know it, it doesn't it has no boundaries it's not really confined to you it's part of you but it's not really yours mm. it's something much bigger than you it's something that you share with other people it just happens to express itself through yeah. your form i i played a trick on myself a few years ago i mean and i I'm always looking for ways that I can maybe um, artificially induce or artificially unlock the door for that self, which I suppose that's what practice is. Any spiritual practice is how can I induce that? And for me, it was adopting the moniker brother in front of my name, Uh, brother Orrin Parker. You know, I said, if I adopt this moniker, then I'm actually making way for the other self to show up in the world just by saying it. When mm, I go yeah. out into this world, if I do this, if that's how I introduce myself, if that's my, if that's what I say, then maybe that's who will show up. And maybe that's whose right. eyes I will look at the world through. Maybe I will look at the world as siblings, as brothers and sisters. Will I do that if I take on the title? And so it has worked in a large degree. I remind myself that way each day. It's like, oh, this is who you are, so you want to be, or this is who exists inside when you're not trapping it with your ego. Let let the brother come out. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. 
Yeah, so you start to see all human beings as your, you know, your siblings, your brothers and sisters. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And I'm happy. I know it. Hey there, Good News listener. I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I've enjoyed producing it. Now, it's time for the Fishing for Goodies segment, where I turn my interviewer role over to the Good News Fishbowl. Longtime listeners know that the Fishbowl contains over 400 unique questions, many seated by you, the listeners. Did you know that you could submit unique questions to the Fishbowl? That's right. Just call the Good News Hotline at 802-459-1668 to have your question added. You can also visit findthegood.news and send me an email. Now, let's take that dive into the fishbowl. So look, this part of the show right here that I talked about when we first got uh, got on, oh, yeah. uh, this is where I reach into this fishbowl here. There's 400 questions in here, but... Uh, I've drawn three out randomly, okay. and we'll just talk about them real quick and, and get your hot take on them. Okay, I like this question. I'd actually like to ask myself this question. What is a lesson that took you a long time to learn? Wow, a lesson that took me a long time to learn. Hmm. That I don't need to try so hard. Ah. Good good things come when i stop trying rather than when i try really hard i like that that goes back to what we were talking about that muscling through the i try <laughs> yeah exactly yeah get out of the way that's a good answer hmm. um what do you appreciate most about your life today wow Ooh, so many things really i guess on a sort of superficial professional level the fact that everything I do in my, my role, in my profession as an author and a lecturer, it's really congruent to my deepest self. You know, I'm not sort of playing a role. I'm not, you know, I'm not teaching or writing about things I'm not really interested in. Everything comes from my, the deepest place. I love that. And, and also, on a more general level, I appreciate so many things. I appreciate nature a lot. Mm. I love nature. I love to be outdoors. I love to run and to walk. Yes. And I really appreciate my, my family as well. That's great. I, I, I agree. That's that's those are the higher ideas for me. Family, nature. I enjoy my time out in nature. Yeah. Yeah. Really it does bring me peace. So beautiful. Yeah. We're gonna need to connect. I'll have to share some what we'll to share some things, uh our pages with each other. I'm sure we both are sharing similar yeah. content that we'll appreciate. I, I, I'm eager to do that. Uh yeah. this is a good question, actually. Uh in your opinion. Who do you consider a visionary? Who do I consider a visionary? Hmm. Well, I'm a big fan of Eckhart Tolle. Yeah. Uh, I know he's he's a very well known yeah. spiritual author, but I like the way he, um, you know, he's he's popularized spirituality so much, and he's really he's, he's not affiliated to any particular tradition. He's sort of popularized a kind of non-traditional spirituality, which is a kind of secular spirituality, you could say, that moves beyond any particular tradition. And uh, I, I admire the way he conducts himself. He doesn't, you know, he's not a guru. He doesn't sort yes. of consciously attract followers. He doesn't have a community where his followers worship him and like some gurus do. Right. You know, so I think he's a very is a person with a great deal of integrity who's carried himself very well despite his his fame and his yeah. um yeah 
I agree, so, yeah. actually, with that, with everything you said, and especially about that, the guru identity. I mean, I won't say that I think that's a toxic thing, but I I do tend to shy away when I see that. I I, I don't know what the apprehension is for me, but I, I always appreciate yeah. the person that takes the more um, more humble position. I find. Yeah, it it can work well, but it can also easily become a toxic relationship between the guru and his, his disciples. Yeah, it often does, unfortunately. Yeah, I've, yeah, for sure, we've seen that. I mean, we can we in our country we see that play out in the media quite a bit. You know, with personalities, they very easily swayed towards uh, celebrity and uh, even in the political realm and the spiritual realm. And worse yeah. when those two things are fused together. Yeah, that's true. We, we're seeing that in our nation uh, on full display. I think it's very uh, almost culty. It's a strange thing. Yeah, yeah, I've noticed that. <laughs> yeah, it's a very real thing. I mean, it's a day. I think many of us are living with that day to day here. I mean, it's it's almost terrifying to some degree. What, yeah, the, what's it's, emerging? It's, yeah, it's quite strange. It makes you long for. You know, earlier, simpler times, maybe 20 or 30 years ago. <laughs> I know, right? That's what I've actually told my, my teenage son that. I said, you know, it wasn't always this way. I always remind him, I said, the I world know. didn't have to be this way. This way it is, but it wasn't always this way. Just to remind no. them. Yeah. Similar in the UK. It's not, I don't think it's, it's as toxic, but there's a lot of kind of duality between Brexiteers and Remainers, as yeah. Leavers and Remainers. and conservatives and left-wing yeah, and right-wing. Yeah, it is. You're right. It is similar. But yeah, it's probably not as volatile, but um, yeah. No. I'm hoping that we're, we've seen the cap. I do hope, and I really do, that we we're seeing the cap of that, as that where it's going to land. I do have fear that it's probably going to get a little worse, but... Uh, you think so? I, I do. Mm. I just, I, you know, I, I always keep saying the, the line keeps moving of what people are willing to accept and tolerate, and... Um, yeah. Especially in when it gets into the violence, the rhetoric is one thing, but it's the physical violence that I'm that, that's really disturbing. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, rhetoric can easily inflame physical violence, can't it? Yeah. Mm. I have mm. one last question. Doesn't come out of the fishbowl. Mm -hmm. I ask um, every guest if I remember <laughs> to, and that is: Did anything good happen today? Anything good happened today? Uh, actually, yeah, something did good did happen. Yeah, I, I was uh, I was having my breakfast this morning, and my wife said to me every morning we listen to the BBC radio in the morning in the kitchen. Yeah, and my wife said to me, Steve, they're talking about you on the radio. Uh, I said, really? <laughs> wow! <laughs> so, so I rushed into the kitchen. Yeah, and they were talking about my book on the radio on Radio Four, BBC Radio Four. I had no idea they were going to discuss it. It was like a, they have this kind of slightly, they have a religious sort of spiritual section for five or ten minutes called Fought for, Fought for the Day. Yeah. And they were talking about my book. This, you know, so it's, it was a really nice surprise. Oh, that's fantastic, man. That, that is nice, especially when it comes out of nowhere like that. Yeah, it was a really, really nice, you know, I had no warning at all, so it was a really nice surprise. Well, speaking of that, I want to make sure that everyone knows what you have going on and where they can connect with your work and what you, your books and lectures. Uh, what, where do you like people to go to get that information? The best place is my website, which is uh, stephenmtaylor.com. That's Stephen with a V, M for Mark, stephenmtaylor.com. Okay. 
Well, I'll make sure we put some links to that in the show notes. The uh, book is Extraordinary Awakenings. I highly recommend it, honestly. I uh, I enjoyed it. I found a lot of common ground in it, and it's honestly going to uh, – it's comforting. Oddly enough, considering the subject matter, it was highly comforting to me because it makes made me feel um, – I guess community in an odd way. It was like a sense of connectedness to all these stories, you know, that it happens. One of my good friends calls it being a windblown seed. You just never know where that seed is going to land and take root. And um, I love that idea. Mm. And I felt like your book was like that. Those windblown seeds land in some of these places, these people, you know, these circumstances. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I've really enjoyed our conversation. So thanks for, thanks for inviting me. It's been great. Thanks for listening to my Beacon Series conversation with Steve Taylor. If you'd like to learn more about Steve's new book, please visit the link in the show notes. If you found something of use in this conversation, please share this episode with a friend, leave a review, or consider visiting findthegood.news donate, where you can help me continue this good news mission from the Louisiana Gulf Coast. I thank you for pressing play and for syncing up with this good news beacon.